Hey everybody, thanks for checking out this episode of My First Sketch at MyFirstSketch.com. I'm Josh Hyam. As always, feel free to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or on SoundCloud and get it automatically. You can catch the show on the Stitcher app as well. Like the podcast on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MyFirstSketch. Email me at Josh at MyFirstSketch.com and follow me on Twitter at MyFirstSketch. We're a little more than three weeks away from Philly Sketch Fest, including the third annual Sketch Comedy Film Festival at the PFS Roxy Theater on Wednesday, May 30th at 7.30 p.m. Tickets are available at filmadelphia.org. And if you're interested in volunteering at Philly Sketch Fest, head to myfirstsketch.com volunteer or send me an email at josh at myfirstsketch.com. For today's episode, we head to Indianapolis to talk to Isaac Lanford, currently a member of An Evening with the Authors, a monthly show at the White Rabbit Cabaret. His first sketch is called The Phone Call. So let's get to it. Hello? Hey, Dave, it's Glenn. Hey, Glenn, how are you doing? How's Chicago? Uh, it's good. Uh, how are things back home? Uh, how are Mary and the kids? Things are good. Mary's got a new job working for a bigger real estate company. Kevin started kindergarten this year, and Josh joined the judo club. I've been working on this new novel about a door-to-door salesman who discovers he's the estranged nephew of an old-school gangster who... I've got herpes. Wait, what? I got fucking herpes, dude. Went to the doctor today... It's for sure, and he told me I needed to contact all of my sexual partners and let them know. Uh, Glenn, we never, you know, I don't remember ever. What? Oh, God, Dave, no. We never fucked. Jesus, man. I called you because you're my best friend. I needed to talk to someone, and there is no way I can tell my mom about this, you know? Shit, man. I'm sorry. Do do you know how you got it, or them, or or whatever? Yeah. I know how. <sighs> okay, I was hanging out at this little drinking spot off the highway on my way back to the city, and I got to talk to this hot chick named Sherry. She was smoking, dude. Well, we're hanging out and drinking a lot, and she's like, hey, you want to smoke a joint? I haven't gotten stoned in years, but this chick was so hot, I didn't want to blow it. So we're driving off into the country, right? Right, okay. So we smoked this joint of this really good shit, and I'm completely ripped. She says we should go back to her place and have some more drinks. Now, I should not have been driving at this point, but I really wanted to bang this chick, Sherry. So I'm driving, and I can barely see straight, and the next thing I know, she screams, and there's this loud thud as something smashes into my windshield. The car goes out of control. A little bit, I hit the ditch. We get out of the car. There's this dude sprawled out on the ground. There's blood absolutely everywhere he's not breathing my windshield shattered there's this huge dent in the front of the car and i'm just standing there stoned off my ass not knowing what the fuck to do sherry and i start arguing i'm like we gotta call the cops she's like no way i have warrants so we end up just throwing this dude's body off the bridge into this big like drainage ditch you know and we race back to her apartment and we're we're both freaking out we're ripping our clothes off because they're all covered in blood you know and she's there's the adrenaline and something because we're both stripping naked and down in this bottle of gin and we're just start going at it 
I mean, like crazy animal sex. It was amazing. So afterwards, she gives me some clean clothes. I, I washed the blood off my car and I headed home. It was like five months ago. Hey, are you still there? Did no, I no, lose no. you? I'm... No, no, I'm still here. Oh, well, then say something, man. I mean, fuck, come on. I, I, I don't know what to say. I, I. It just sucks, man. Now, every time I think I'm going to bang some chick, I've got to be like, hang on, I should tell you. I have these giant open sores all over my junk and it's contagious. That's going to be a real deal breaker. Well, I don't know. It, it's getting late. I just need a vent, you know? Yeah, sure. Well, all right. I'll talk to you later, Dave. Yeah, yeah. See you, Glenn. Oh, Dave, do me a favor, man. I guess this goes without saying, but uh, don't tell anyone, you know, about the herpes. It's kind of embarrassing. Oh, uh, yeah, sure, Glenn. Yeah. Cool. All right. Oh, I probably shouldn't tell anybody that I killed that guy either. Later. Uh, hey, Isaac. Hello. All right. So tell me where this idea came from. Uh, so any of the authors came about, uh, I work at a venue in Indianapolis, Indiana called the white rabbit cabaret. And it's a multi-purpose mm. venue, music, comedy, theater, dance, uh, different nights of the week, whatever. But we've been doing a stand-up show for about a year and a half. And then another comic had come in with an idea and we pooled together and we started producing this uh, like live dating show. And there was already like a bingo show and some interactive stuff and some like alternative comedy stuff going on. And a, a friend of ours named uh, Big Jim Lugers, he went by the Big Pretty. He pitched this idea for the show and evening with the authors, which was simply comics posing as fake authors reading from their fake books. And it got going and we're still doing it now. It's June will be four years. Uh, Jim actually passed away uh, just two years ago in April, uh, but we kept the show going. They're becoming kind of a central core. There's seven of us that do the show every month, and then we bring in guests. And when we travel, we you know we'll take a carload of us and then hit up locals to be on the show as well. Um, what what's the the impetus of like where do you get the inspiration for these fake books, these fake authors? Yeah, no, sure. The nice thing about the show is that out of the seven of us and then also some of the guests we bring in, everybody kind of has their own approach of how they come at the show. Mm -hmm. Some of us have a more uh, like writing background and so delve further into like the literary side of it and the actual uh, literature, that sort of thing, where a lot of us like me, I'm a character guy. So mine are always a character first and then I figure out what the dynamic is as to what this person would have written to give myself a vehicle just to kind of go out and do more of a character monologue. And then it really comes from all different angles. Some people, it is the character first and the writing is kind of secondary. Other people, the writing is the forefront and the character is really nothing more than a name. So what, what's your history with comedy? What, what were you watching growing up? What were you into? What made you laugh as a kid? Ooh. Yeah, uh, when I was a kid, I was kind of lucky with comedy because my cat's meowing at me here and trying to kick it out of the room. <laughs> uh, my dad was kind of an old school comedy nerd, and 
he used to uh, edit movies for us when we were kids, my older brother and I, so that he would like put a, two VCRs and a tape deck in the middle, and he would actually edit out like profanity out of different movies. Okay. And maybe even cut out like nude shots. So I saw Coming to America when I was like probably nine years old, something like that. So he was like, and I would get, that's really, yeah. he was like into the, oh, what's it called? There's actually like a business that does that now that edits all the videos. Like, yeah. Oh, it's really? Like, um, it's some like Christian video thing. And they, okay. And they almost got like in copyright trouble, but they somehow avoided it. But anyway, yeah. So you saw like coming to America, like sanitized. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, mean kind okay. of. The best it could be, I guess, you know, (laughs) still probably a little too young for it. But we also we we grew up in the country and our local Mm -hmm. like NBC affiliate got the rights to like the Saturday Night Live reruns when I was probably around that same age. So we got turned on to like the uh, so this is like probably 1987, something like that. So we got turned on to the original like five years at the same time as the Eddie Murphy year. And then at the mm-hmm. same time as like, I guess what would have been current was like John Lovett's Dana Carvey era. And so that came to my brother and I all at once. And that's really like Saturday Night Live, I think was probably the biggest influence growing up. And then by my age, I kind of hit in that nineties where sketch comedy got really popular and was on a lot of the cable networks and that sort of thing. And as much as I always loved it, and that's where my influences came from, I, I've always been a character guy. I've never done mm-hmm. straight st- like sketch comedy. Oh, I ask everybody, who would be your favorite Saturday Night Live cast member of all time? <sighs> Ooh, man. Uh, just that I derive the most pleasure from, I would say, probably Phil Hartman. Mm-hmm. Although, like, I think Mike Myers might be, like, the ideal sketch performer. Okay. Um, you had mentioned being a character guy, and, like, I mean, what, so what's about Phil Hartman? Because to Phil, I, I love Phil Hartman, and I think he's my answer, too, generally. But, like, he's not so much a character guy as he was, he was generally the straight man, the... Yeah. Like, for, for a long time on the show, he played the dad. He uh-huh. was always, like... It wasn't until later on where he hooked on to a couple different characters and like really explored like, you know, uh, caveman lawyer or when he did the Clinton impression. Um, yeah, I think Hartman for me, the reason he's my favorite is probably because he bridged a gap between Pee Wee Herman and Saturday Night Live, to be honest. Now, were you aware like, so I'm guessing you're watching Pee Wee Herman at the same time as a kid or. Yeah. My dad had also turned us on to the HBO special, the live at the Roxy. So, so, okay. So you're fully aware that Phil Hart, this, this guy is both things. Cause I didn't, I didn't know Phil Hartman was involved in Pee Wee Herman until like I was in my kid. I didn't watch SNL that much, but I knew who Phil Hartman was, but I didn't realize that he was involved pretty intimately in both of those, like kind of blew my mind when I realized it. Yeah. I I think again, it was kind of my dad because he was always like a nerd guy. Like he was into comic books and really into like continuity and like before the internet, like, you know, reading the liner notes of the albums and always knowing the information, the, the tidbits who worked on things. And I think just because he was that way, he probably like told us things while we were watching the programs 
So that gave us a little further insight than what maybe the average kid was picking up when they were watching it. Uh, when do you get into performing? When, like, what's your first experience on stage? I had been trying to get, well, I guess my very first experience on stage would have been talent shows in school where I tried to whip up some things that were always like kind of half cooked and never really went anywhere. But I was, as a teenager, I was always trying to get my friends to like get together and like film sketches. That's what I wanted to do. And we had like a couple of like forays that we tried to get into it, but my friends were all in bands and weren't really as into the comedy idea as I was. There was once I remember I read like a mock children's story that I had written as the opener for my friend's punk band when I was in high school. How'd that, uh, how does that go? Eh, you always hear horror stories eh. of like comedians opening for musicians and it never working or. Well, we were on a small scale and everybody kind of knew each other. So I think that probably helped. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Uh, it went fine. It went fine. But it, when I really started performing was in, I was 19 in 2001 and I was on tour with my buddy's band and we got stranded in Waco, Texas and just trying to pass time and whatever I had stolen like a cowboy shirt and a wig from a thrift store. And we started just like running the camera and just improvising. And I started playing this character, Jasper T. Colbert, that then we would keep shooting towards like, so there was this memoir after the tour of like everywhere they stopped this guy kept popping up like at their tour spots you know like real shitty video whatever but i still do that character and I, it's the same wig that i had then and i've taken that character like to i lost count of how many states i performed in as the character i've done all kinds of different shows i did them as a stand-up act for a while i was i had very little tiny blips i was on two different seasons of last comic standing as the character okay um so and so that's always been like the flagship and then i just kind of from there started dividing off and creating different characters uh, so okay so tell me about this uh jasper t colbert like is he just just this random texas dude that you decided like let's embody him for a while like yeah i I've, i was always really into andy kaufman mm -hmm. and so i didn't since i didn't have any kind of training or anything like the only way i understood to like do a character was to just put it on and then not break the character for yeah. extended periods of time so I can remember I would stand I would, again, I'd go with my friend's band to these shows at these little venues and I would just stand outside as Jasper and just talk to people. And so it quickly became that what separated the character from a more two dimensional like redneck was that he was an absolute like bullshitter liar and would tell the most ridiculous stories trying to pass them off as his life. And there were, like, when it got to a point where there was literally more people standing outside listening to this character talk that would be inside watching the band, we started looking at it as being its own thing, and we ended up creating like a mock band to go along with the character. Okay. So each of these other guys, my friends that were musicians, created their own characters that complemented, and we ended up making these short films and the band would play shows. And so more and more of the Jasper character just keeps getting more and more fleshed out in different angles of the character and different histories. And we tried to keep it Canon as much as we can over, you know, a course of now it's been 17 years. 
And so at this point, the new Fulton Jasper is he's not just a liar who talks about how tough he is or successful, but he also was a stand-up comedian who appeared on network television two times. And now... How does that happen? How do you... How do you get to Last Comic Standing? I had started doing stand-up as the character because I was living in Muncie, Indiana, and my wife, my now wife and I had started dating, and we knew that we wanted to move somewhere. We didn't know where we were going to go or exactly. It ended up being New York, but I knew that if I was going to go somewhere alone, I couldn't do the band thing anymore, and I had to have a way to do a solo performance to like get into a new scene. So I decided to start doing Jasper as a stand-up act. So I started going to like little open mics and just doing the, a lot of the bits I'd been doing anyway in that format. And so I met some comics and last comic standing was filming and they were going to have a, like auditions in Nashville. And we decided to go, even though everybody told us it was bullshit and not to go, it was a waste of time, but we were too naive and we went and wait outside at in line at the Zanies in Nashville for like eight hours where I stayed in character the entire time like with the other people in the line. And eventually they brought out the camera crew. And because I was dressed like a cowboy in Nashville, they like were attracted to me immediately and had me shoot a bunch of scenes with Bill Bellamy was the host that year. Oh, so that's not, and, it's not even like, the first iteration of last comic standing. No, it's, it's like season five or six. I think it's six. I can't, it's either six or seven because so I did that and they didn't even let us in the building to audition. Like we went around the back and like auditioned in 30 seconds for like a production assistant. <laughs> so it was not worth it at all, except that when it aired, there's a clip of Bill Bellamy and Jasper standing. And he says Jasper's name to the camera. Like, uh, so it was funny. And then they didn't do the show again for a couple of years. And when they did it again, they had changed the format again. And it was Craig Robinson was the host, Andy Kindler, Natasha Legero, and, uh, uh, oh, oh, I'm blanking on his name right now. Uh, the comic, uh, he, he died, uh, Greg Giroldo. Okay. Yeah. So th- that was in this incarnation, they only filmed in New York and LA. That's the only auditions. It was less American Idol like, and they like were streamlining it a little bit. And I happened to be in New York. So I emailed, they had just like a blanket email to the production and I sent them the clip and I was like, Hey, I did this character before Uh, I'm in New York. If you want, I'll come down and do it again. It'll probably be good for the B roll. (laughs) And they brought me down and I got to skip the line and go into the Gotham comedy club and do my like three minutes, which bombs to the judges but then there ended up being an exchange between me and Andy Kindler that they edited into a thing and ended up putting me on that season as well. in like a small clip of like the judge shitting on uh, me, so, you know? So you were in like the, uh, uh, I don't want to say like the William hung, like montage, but basically, but yeah. yeah. I mean, essentially, yes. Uh, which I, let me say though, I met Andy Kindler, uh, this past year, mm-hmm. And somebody brought it up to him. Mm-hmm. And so I had to sit in a diner with my phone out and Andy Kindler and I watched it together. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only thing like, I don't, I don't really think I watched a lot of last comic standing after like the first two seasons. I do remember that, um, that season with, with Natasha Legero mm-hmm. 
there was a there was a, a comic that had come on and i I'd, I'd heard his name before i think i'd seen him on like the compilation shows of like um premium blend or whatever before so i knew he existed and i didn't really know that latasha Legero was a like a stand-up at that point yet like i knew right i knew her more from reno 911 and a couple other things on county central and like so he goes his act and she like just completely tears him apart and doesn't like it at all and he's like i've been doing this for 20 years what made you what made you the judge and she's just like nbc made me the judge like and she's just totally <laughs> cool and chill about it and like this dude just goes off he's like he's like you're not funny and repeating your punchlines doesn't make it funnier like <laughs> and i was just like oh man Natasha just killed him it was awesome and she's great now and i think her i think her thing just debuted today on netball a couple oh weeks yeah ago on netflix because yeah i think it, she did a thing with uh her and her husband where they both do a set of stand-up and then they give relationship advice at the end i haven't watched it yet but oh that's neat i think it just came out um okay so tell me about indianapolis because i know very little about the scene there um like uh let's start with a white rabbit cabaret that, that yeah. you work with you mentioned that it it sounds like it's pretty much a catch-all we'll do whatever show fits where do you get involved with that yeah so they uh they're actually this month they're celebrating their eighth anniversary uh it's owned by a set of sisters uh deborah and becky and then deborah's husband andrew is like the bar manager and runs the day-to-day operations uh deborah is a modern dancer she's like a you know trained she teaches dance that's her thing but she has like you know some eclectic taste so when they launch the place one of the things they do is a lot of burlesque and she's involved with that and then they also do like a cabaret style show where that's like kind of tricking an audience into watching modern dance without knowing it where it's like weird costuming and concepts and a clown and a mime the muncie brothers like play like theatrical hosts for it and then the same characters dorgan and milroy muncie and alabaster betty host a show the bingo bango show which is like a clown mime burlesque dancer hosting a night of bingo where people win and go on stage and win weird prizes and she dances and like all this so it's kind of you know like a uh it's an eclectic spot you know like it's not straight mainstream but they they have the stage size and the sound equipment so they have rock and roll shows or djs or you know they can run the whole gambit so it's something different all the time they had opened in april of 2010 and i moved i'm from indiana but i've been in new york and i moved back to indianapolis in october of 2010 i the house i moved into my neighbor happened to be a guy I'd known since I was a teenager and he recommended, he knew I had been doing comedy and recommended I go talk to them. And by January I was running a stand-up open mic or rather a showcase. And from there, our relationship just kind of grew and I started working like at the venue. And then we started producing shows together. We've got this dating show. Let's make a date. Uh, we do another show called Lloyd and Harvey's Wowie Zowie show, which is like a elderly, comic duo that hosts like a gong show style variety show where some of the acts are real and some are people playing characters and it's all kind of like mixed up and whatnot. And then it's gotten kind of engrossed into the, the comedy scene here, both like the improv and the stand up scene. 
and hooked up with some different promoters. And now we'll have like some bigger standup names come through like Todd Barry and Rhea butcher was just there and Neil hamburger and some different acts like that. But we still do a lot of our own like in-house production if, with like weird kind of character stuff. Evening with the authors does every first Tuesday of the month. Wowie Zowie shows once a month. Let's make a dates once a month. Bingo runs twice a month. And what about the rest of this? Like, cause I think, I, I think I had a couple of friends go to, um, I guess it was a sketch festival in Indianapolis and like, I kind of like dismissed it as like, it's Indianapolis. That's like almost middle of nowhere. I think we've, uh, I think I've had a guest who have been born in, in Indianapolis and like, it's one of those, like, like I'm on the East coast and it's kind of a dick for me to say, but like, it's kind of like one of those like flyover States that you don't think about having a scene. Um, oh, for sure. I, and uh- that's kind of the way it's been when I got introduced to stand up was like the tail end of 2006. And I was, like I said, living in Muncie and that's like an hour from Indianapolis. Mm. And so we would come here do shows and we had two comedy clubs and there was like a rivalry, like the owner of one, if you even did the open mic at the other comedy club, wouldn't allow you to do the open mic at her comedy club. Is that the, um, I've heard of that rivalry rivalry, like from, other podcasts and stuff is that that's not go bananas is it no uh we got our places are crackers and morty's okay and you know whatever like i never like i got like into stand-up and i did it like pretty much exclusively for like about three years and i always i kept working in it and around it and like i would do sets after that but about three years that i was really doing it like I was coming down to these clubs and whatever. And I, I don't know, it wasn't my scene really. It was odd, like how competitive it was between the two places because really they're fairly far apart from one another and it shouldn't have been that way. And then by the time I moved back here, the uh, Bloomington, Indiana, the club opened called the comedy attic and the comedy attic. This is like an hour and 10 minutes away, something like that. And the comedy attic is this small club only seats like, you know, under a hundred people. Maybe I don't know the exact number, but we'll have like Mark Marin will come perform and do a weekend there. Yeah, I've I, yeah I've heard of Comedy Attic for sure. Yeah, it's a really cool think place. Of, Go ahead. And I always think Bloomington would be that. Why are you going there? But yeah, it's just a club that does it right. They treat the the comics with respect. They are tough on the audience about their talking. They don't, you know give away a ton of tickets. It's not a comedy club that's built around selling drinks and chicken wings. Hmm. It's a, built around comedy and people respond to it. So, you know, Jean Garofalo yeah. can come do a weekend there, even though she shouldn't by logic. <laughs> yeah. She should be in a theater somewhere in Indianapolis. Like, yeah. And with the opening of that place and the way the rivalry was and the rivalry with the clubs is really one sided, but it still affected how things were ran eventually like I came back and just kind of started running a a local showcase, bringing people from around the Midwest at the white rabbit. And then another group called rocket ship comedy kind of sprang up about, you know, within the same year and started doing independent bar shows and were, they ended up bringing like Kyle Kinane and Doug Stanhope and people. And Mm. we're at the point now where we have our clubs and they're still doing the club thing but there's a really strong independent stand-up scene in Indianapolis. And you can go see people, like I said, like Todd Berry or Ray butcher on one nighters at small, like nightclubs rather than 
going to the comedy club. And then our improv scene just kind of started growing right around the same time where it used to be there were a couple of troops and we have a comedy sports franchise. And now there's a second and third, I think, uh, improv, like exclusive like theaters in the city or the surrounding counties. And a lot more troops have popped up and there's a lot more like experimental stuff going on. And I've said of Indianapolis, like its strength is like not any one thing. We're not exceptional, but we have like pretty good of everything. Okay. So when you have a festival, like probably the one that your friends came to was probably the crossroads comedy festival. That sounds funny. And it is, it's stand up sketch, improv podcast, everything. And that's really the best idea for Indianapolis because we have a good, good amount to showcase of each thing, but we don't have any, we don't have any stars. Nobody from here has ever gone on. Like Mike Epps is from Indianapolis, but I don't know that Mike Epps was really doing comedy in Indianapolis. Uh, right. He might've, he might be from, yeah, he, but he didn't start necessarily. Like, yeah. yeah. Sashir Zameda is from here. And she like went to high school in one of the surrounding counties and she did like the comedy sports and this group indie prov. She did their classes and stuff before going off to school, but she kind of, you know, went more of a theater route where went for school for theater and then went to New York and ended up doing UCB and stuff. So she also wasn't like a fixture in the scene before moving on to things, but calls this place home. Um, you had mentioned doing like stand up. Were you always doing stand up as Jasper uh, Colbert or were were you pretty like did you do it as like yourself as it like or yeah i did i about a probably only like six months in i started uh doing it as myself and some of it was pressure from other comics because comics are always like real like uh touchy about like the purity of what they do and i would when i did jasper i would show up places i would come and go as jasper i would never break and so it got to the point where I started like meeting people and I was like, you know, I kind of like would like to be able to hang around and talk to some people. <laughs> you want to be a real person around people and have friends. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I totally understand. Like on one hand, I do understand that purity of, of standup comedy thing, but like, you know, the crap that they give to like Larry, the cable guy or. Yeah. Like, Carrot top's not even quite a character anymore, but like the idea of standup as a character and what that could be like, I totally understand it and I totally get it. But like, I don't totally understand the backlash of like, you know, when David Cross is like, Oh, you mean Dan Whitney? Like he, when he goes on his tirades about Larry, the cable guy, like, I'm like, all right, calm down. Yeah. Like, which is weird because David Cross came from the alt comedy scene. So for him to be looking at it that way would be kind of strange in my opinion. Uh, I like my stand up. I've always preferred like kind of more personal, like angles. And so I get it why people like they're like, I'm putting myself out there raw for me. So they are a little, you know, offended by somebody doing a little song and dance or whatever to get the laughs instead of what they're going. But everything's different. I do. I talk, do a stand up class for the one of the improv troops because they do all their levels of improv. And a lot of people were asking about stand up and I ended up hooking up with them. And one of the things that I talk about is when Steve Martin put an arrow on his head, played a banjo and danced around. Nobody called it alternative comedy. It was yeah. just comedy. And it's weird with stand up in particular that 
where we think about the purity of this art form or whatever, which the way we think about it is only about 40 years old. It's only since like an evening with the improv premiered on A&E and the HBO specials and that sort of thing that this idea of what stand-up comedy was got ingrained into American society. Yeah, if you, Things were different. If you go back and you watch like, um, like I know there's certain channels that have like Ed Sullivan on, like what we would consider stand-ups, they're all characters. Like um, George yeah. Carlin for a very long mm-hmm. time inhibited characters on stage. Um, I'm trying to think of her name. I can, Phyllis Diller is a character. Mom's Mabley is a yep. character. Like all of these stand-ups. Dangerfield. Yeah. Yeah. I, Until we get to like that observational, you know, what we consider like the, that Jerry Seinfeld, like, well, it's the deal, you know, that cliche. Until we yeah. get to that point, stand-up is a character act for the most part. Right. Uh, even Richard Pryor, who, I mean, is one of the people I would bring up to say somebody who's doing like real raw stuff is also doing extended monologues as Mudbone. Yeah. Like it got weird and it was just because it's the brick wall effect. Like a comedy club would open and they would put a fake brick wall up because that's what they saw on television yeah. on the improv and thought that that's what you needed to have a stand-up comedy show. And it really did change all these clubs that will, the comedy clubs always have the, you know, the pictures of the comedians painted on the wall and it'll be like Richard Pryor and George Carlin, and they'll all have Andy Kaufman. Yeah. Whereas none of these places would b- have booked Andy Kaufman. Yeah, and then all comedy like grows out of that in the in the eighties, nineties, where it becomes a, like, you know, it's a almost a response to that Jerry Seinfeld, yeah, observational thing where it gets a little weirder, it gets a little odd. It goes out of the the comedy clubs and into the bars again. Yeah, with like and, uh, like L.A. with Largo and New York was uh, like the Luna Lounge and all those. Yeah, you mentioned you're teaching now. Like, are you just it's, it's just it's just teaching stand up. I do a stand up class. Like I said, for this, this improv troupe is also a non for profit. So I do a stand up class with them. And then I just did through my own. Uh, we have like a side promotional productional company at the white rabbit called Hairbrain comedy that we will promote a lot of, we'll bring like shows from out of town and put it under that banner. But I ran for the first time a character, like a four session workshop that went really well. And I think I'll probably do that again, where, as I had said, like no one taught me how to do anything and I developed a system on my own and I've been able to, I've been pretty successful with it at this point with all the different shows I do. And so I kind of just, mapped it out and broke it down into a four session thing and then had people run through my system of creating a character and fleshing it out and gave them some like video they could keep afterwards and that sort of thing and some tricks and tools they can use to develop characters because there's, I feel like a bigger opportunity for this type of work than there has been in the past. Like I can actually go to different cities now with just a suitcase with a costume in it and go and do like pop on some oddball show and do a monologue as a character. Whereas before it was always like when I started, it was throwing up a mock band in front of real bands. Or when I did stand up, it was doing a character act on a straight stand up show. And it was always a little out of the ordinary. And now there's a lot of more weirdo shows all around the country. Yeah. How has teaching affected your pursuit of comedy in the last couple of months? 
you know, I don't know. That's that's tough to say. Uh, I think it's grown my audience, which has been nice. Yeah. And it's also given me some people are really talented. They haven't they haven't done the things themselves yet, but when they get into it, they kind of jump in with both feet, and it ends up being people to collaborate with within a short amount of time. And that's been nice. And it has just grown the community, I think, a little bit more. There's a lot of people who I think it's on their bucket list to do like a stand-up set. And that's all they really want out of the class. They need the the support. And teaching a stand-up class is very strange, like in general. Because I teach it and I'm like, I barely even do this anymore. But I still promote shows and I've worked in it. And it's it's weird to take the class because all stand-up is is going and doing it and trying but what i can do is give you like some pointers to not make a couple of mistakes when you first go out and then also give you an appointment to come to a place to work on it and to work with other people and like bounce ideas off of each other and that sort of thing so it's more of like after the first couple of weeks where i talk about history and stuff it's more of a like just a let uh, interplay between everybody but for me myself, I don't really know how much impact teaching has had on my own performance or anything. I think it's just made me break down and analyze the way I do things more than I would have otherwise. Which is, can be helpful too. And like there, you know, you get the the detractors that say that like, you can't teach people to be funny or, you know, whatever else, you know, the anti class system people, but like there is a, a positive to having a deadline to have an, yep. an open space of working and workshopping and learning, you know, tricks of the trade. Like it could be a money grab for certain people, but like, like there's a class in Philadelphia that we all basically assume is just a money grab for that one comic. But sure. Like there is a positive experience that can come out of it. Like even you mentioned people that just are the bucket list people, like they can go on stage and do their five minutes and, like they can look at themselves as, as like retired from comedy and not have to uh-huh. like they're successful with that five minutes. Yeah. And you know, I take it pretty seriously. I'll, I always, I bring in guest speakers since I've never devoted myself completely to stand up. I bring in my friends that have, and I have them tell their stories for one. I want the class to understand how like individualized of a thing it is, how nobody's story is the same, how you come into it, how you approach it, none of it, your career path. But then also like give somebody who's done it firsthand to explain to them like the hierarchy and the system of moving up through a club and all those sort of things. And most of them, the comics that have come have really enjoyed doing it. I've had a couple, like my one friend told me he was surprised because he thought he was going to come in and we were going to be doing writing. And I was like, no, I wanted you to talk to them about your experience He's like, so these people have never done stand-up? And I thought, well, that's what gets me because that's what I think is weird. The classes that are geared towards the people that are already doing it. To me, that seems more like a cash grab because you're like, hey, want to take this MC course to learn how to introduce people better or whatever. Whereas what I'm doing is I'm taking laymen and I'm giving them a peek behind the curtain on how things run and if it's something they really would want to try to do. What's something that you've learned from comedy that you would pass on to someone that's relatively new? What's something that comedy has taught you over the last, I mean, you must say like two decades worth of doing stuff and yeah. What would be your first Uh, patience? Yeah, I would have to be patience because you can't rush anything. You can't rush anything in comedy when you're performing it. 
and you can't rush it on the outside of it, like career or business wise either. You have to let things move at their own pace and just be content. And if you can apply that to the rest of your life, that's great. And the other thing is to not compare yourself to your peers, you know, to not look at what somebody else has as some sort of measurement of what your success is. Hmm. I haven't like, I ask that question of everybody and I've never heard of that. Like I've, no one's ever come to that one, like of not comparing yourself. Cause I think that is a pretty poisonous and toxic emotion to go through. It's brutal. Yeah. I've got friends that, you know, I live in Indianapolis. There's not a large market to make your living doing comedy. Yeah. And we have, we have a morning show that uh, has been for decades a very, very popular syndicated morning radio show. And I've got friends that write for the show. And there'll be times where I'm like, I got I to get on there. I got to work there. If That's the only way I'm going to make my living doing this. And then I quickly remember like, no, there's a reason why you've never tried to do this because that show isn't yeah. for you. Like I wouldn't work there. Uh, we also just... I was completely unfamiliar with the, the company, this, uh, barstool sports. Okay. Yeah. But there's now barstool heartland, which is Pat McAfee. The former punter for the Indianapolis mm -hmm. Colts was given a franchise of the company that he's running out of Indianapolis. And a buddy of mine is his vice president. And some other guys I know have, are like the crew. They're the main guys. And it's very successful at very big. And it's very easy for me to get jealous looking at what they have. <laughs> but then I have to also remember that I don't watch sports <laughs> and that I would have nothing to offer this company and just have, you know, and just say, it's nice to just be able to say congratulations without yeah. like congratulations, fuck you, you know, and just let them ha like be happy that somebody, you know, is having success. It doesn't matter if I still have a day job, you know? updates since I recorded this. I watched the Honeymoon special, the three-part comedy special with Natasha Legera and Moshe Kasher. It's fun, so you should check it out on, on Netflix. You can see Isaac and a bunch of other wonderful people coming from Indianapolis to perform an evening with the authors on Saturday, June 2nd in the 7 p.m. block at the Ruba Club, along with Bad Medicine and Unstoppable Failure. You can follow an evening with the authors on Facebook at facebook.com slash fake authors. An evening with the authors regularly performs at the White Rabbit Cabaret in Indianapolis on the first Monday of every month. My first sketch is a Philly Sketchfest production. You can find out more information at phillysketchfest.com, on Twitter at PHL Sketchfest, on Instagram at Philly Sketchfest. And this year, we're using the hashtag PHLSketchFest10. The music on this episode is by the band Nono, which you can check out at nonoband.bandcamp.com. And like my first sketch on Facebook. This is Josh Hyam. Thanks for listening. Go see some comedy.